0: The Gist is brought to you by Texture, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anywhere, using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash gist. That's texture.com gist. And by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code JUST at checkout to get ten percent off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following
1: podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, January 19th, 2016 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The news media is biased. That is true. Charges of bias abound. There's liberal bias. Yeah, we got that. Definitely got that. East Coast bias. I looked it up. 47% of Americans live in the Eastern Time Zone. So it's only 14% in the Pacific. So if broadcasters want to reach the most people, yeah, they're going to be a little East Coast biased. You know what else biased they are? They're biased towards a contest when there is no contest they think there might be a contest when there comes close to being a contest they say they could make this a contest and then when there is a contest as there is in iowa and new hampshire the media says some crazy stuff like this this sunday the democratic showdown that object in hillary clinton's rearview mirror is closer than it appears she now knows she's in a dead heat with bernie sanders in iowa and new hampshire that was how Meet the Press began its program Sunday. She is not in a dead heat. She holds a 35-point lead in the latest South Carolina polls. And in the last two national polls, they have her up 15 and 25%. But that's not my point. That's not why I'm saying she's not in a dead heat. A dead heat is a tie at the end of a race. We are two weeks from the start of the race. That is a point that ABC's This Week got completely backwards when it began its program on Sunday. Sprint to the finish. Just two weeks before the voting starts, and we're face-to-face with Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders. A sprint to the finish. Iowa is not the finish. If only there was a sprint-based metaphor that described the start of a race. I would like to think of that start-of-a-race metaphor, but I am blocked Anyway, as I've said before, Iowa is, for Republicans, negatively, slightly negatively correlated to winning the presidency. For Democrats, there is a little correlation. Bernie Sanders, absolutely, that guy could win. But the media bias towards a contest is making the media say something a lot stronger than he could win. Also, let me talk for a second about winning Iowa, this idea of winning Iowa. I guess because of our politics, we have a first past the post form of elections winner take-all right that's not how it works with the primaries candidates don't win most states especially these early states some are winner take-all but they win delegates and those delegates are apportioned proportionally so really what we're talking about Bernie winning Hillary winning talking about winning maybe 24 or 25 of the 46 delegates out of 4491 delegates so if we're talking about sprints this is one yard of a hundred yard dash and that's for The Dems. For the Republicans in Iowa, here's all you need to know. This is from the JV, aka the kids' table debate on the Fox Business Channel. The GOP was there, three members of the GOP. At this debate, there was Carly Fiorina standing between Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum. She said this
0: If I may begin by saying how honored I am to be standing here with two former Iowa caucus
1: winners (laughs) governor, senator. So just think. Ted Cruz could one day too be relegated to the non-primetime version of a debate on Hulu Plus or whoever will be hosting debates in 2020. Yeah, he'll have probably moved to New York by then. You know, maybe a story given New York values, New York real estate values. In the spiel today, I get back to Ted Cruz, I honestly sympathize with the guy's family. You know, running for president takes a toll. But first, I just returned from Chicago where yet another tape of a police shooting a teenager has been unearthed. 17-year-old Cedric Chapman was unarmed. He was running away from police. It is another problem for Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Will the bombastic Democratic power broker be able to keep his hold on power? Now here's an idea, magazines, magazines. Got a lot of magazines in my life. Some would argue too many magazines. You just take The Atlantic, you just take The New Yorker, you just take magazines with the word science, or some variation thereof in the title, like Scientific American or Science. Just throw them out, I still have way too many magazines. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn to Texture. Texture offers unlimited access to all your favorite magazines, all my favorite magazines, I just listed three of them, for less than the price of three magazines that you buy at commercial prices. There are hundreds of magazines. Just pick the articles that interest you most. The Texture editorial team recommends stories, so there's this curation aspect to it. And if you sign up right now, in mere seconds, you can gain insider access to the best reads plus exclusive content. So Texture is offering my listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash gist. Go there because you can find out all the different kinds of magazines that are on offer. One's named science, one's not named science. But think about what you get. You get unrestricted access to the world's best magazines from back issues to the ones on newsstands today. Take advantage of your offer right now when you go to texture.com slash gist. Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel has been called a lot of things, some of them unprintable, but not unsayable, like fuckhead. I'm sure he's been called a fuckhead, because he uses language like that. He's been called hard-charging, he's been called profane. Lately, though, he's been called embattled. Things aren't going well for the mayor, largely because of the release of a video showing the shooting of a teenager named Laquan McDonald. It is the latest conflagration in the ongoing stories about the police and over-policing. Joining me now is Eric Zorn. He's a columnist for this Chicago Tribune has been covering Chicago and ROM for years and years. Hello, Eric. Hey, Mike. So, as we talk in mid January, you know, people are calling for him to resign. Who are these people, and how likely is it that he will resign?
0: Well, the people are a number of people in the Chicago area, the, the polls are taken showing that he is you know, underwater in terms of his popularity, his favorability rating. So people want him to resign. The people who are doing the protesting tend to be uh, a lot of younger people, some of the Black Lives Matter people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has tended, to, the conflagration has been because this teenager, Laquan McDonald, is African-American. There's a real concern about the relations between the minority community and the police the question, is he going to resign? The answer is clearly no. Ron Emanuel is not a resigning guy. I, the story is pretty is, is known that in 1993, when he was the political director in the White House, the Clintons wanted him gone. And Mac McLarty, the chief of staff, goes to him and says, you know, Ron, pl- please pack up your things. And he says, no, I'm not going. Uh, he, the president's going to have to come and fire me personally. Yeah. And he, Clinton was confrontation averse and he sort of moved him aside to a director of special projects kept him in the white house and from there he built his reputation back and by the time he left about five years later clinton was hugging him at a news conference so he, he's he's not a guy who's going to who's going to quail when the nation magazine writes an editorial saying he must resign it was a
1: strongly worded editorial <laughs> it was very to true. be fair yeah
0: uh, he's not he's not the kind of guy who's going to quit uh, so the question for the protesters uh, in Chicago, and for all of us, is what's plan B? What, 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 How can we advance things in Chicago? How can we make things better in Chicago, given that Rahm Emanuel is going to be here for another three years? He was just re-elected.
1: Right. That's what I want to get to. So, he was re-elected in 2015, and there was a runoff. He beat all the other opponents in the field by about 10%, but he didn't get to the 50% threshold. Then there was a runoff. He once again won by another 10%. So, he went from 44% to about 55%. The uh, fellow he beat, Chewy Garcia, was seen as not that strong a candidate, you know, you, we might be upset with him or Chicagoans might be upset with him, but they had an election pretty recently.
0: Yeah. And there's not a lot about Rahm that wasn't known at mm-hmm. the time. Now, this, no one
1: thought he had great, strong relations with minority communities back then.
0: Yes. A lot of the, the problems that people have with him were evident at the time of, of the election. This video is really the, the new piece of evidence that's come out. That and also he's he has come out and proposed the largest property tax hike in the history of the city.
1: Right, which is what something people do, mayors do after they get reelected. They stop making the promise and say, OK, now here's your medicine. And, and frankly,
0: as someone who's observed, I think that was called for. Chicago's property taxes are low. And our financial problems are huge. And it was a responsible thing to do, shocking but responsible, to raise property taxes to try to meet some of these crushing obligations that he inherited a lot of them. Mm-hmm. In fairness to him, when he took over four and a half years ago, or five years ago now, he he just he had this enormous set of problems to deal with that Mayor Daly, uh, Mayor Richard M. Daly, who had been in charge for 21 years, had borrowed and kicked cans down the road in an incredible fashion so that... He just basically left it all on Emanuel's doorstep. So, I mean, that's yeah. a lot of people. The think, state
1: of Illinois is in poor shape too, therefore not helping the city of Chicago.
0: So he's got a variety of problems to deal with. Everyone's got problems with, with things that he has done. The, the really the new developments that I think are, are damning to him are the fact that his administration paid five million dollars to this teenager's family to have their law, potential lawsuit go away and to try to hide that video. And I'm sure most people in, in the listening audience have seen that video, yes. and it is. Dismaying.
1: But that's the important thing why it's not just uh, a bad police shooting. Therefore, of course, the mayor is going to get some flack. And the mayor has fired the police commissioner and said the things that maybe you'd want a mayor to say. But he kind of he did sit on this video. And the thought is, if the video were released in a timely fashion, we should know that the family didn't want it released. But if it were released, that might have imperiled his election chances. It might have. Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: I mean, it's hard to say. I think some of the things you said about Chuy Garcia, his, his opponent in the in the runoff election, he was not seen as a particular particularly strong. Candidate. Maybe he
1: would have drawn a stronger opponent, though, if they if he was if Rom was seen as weak.
0: It might have, yeah, depending on when that video was released mm-hmm. and the timing of those elections. It's it's possible. But in order you can't I mean, I'm a believer in democracy and, and I'm not such a believer in recalls and this instant reaction like oh, things have gone wrong. You've right. lost our confidence. You must go. If we ran the country that way, presidents who routinely fall below 50 percent in popularity would be always subject to recall. Hey, you've lost the confidence of the nation. You must quit. I, I don't think that that a stable system can run that way. And I think that Emmanuel has, at the ballot box, earned his chance to try to rehabilitate himself. And you know, he's the one who famously said, "Never let a good crisis go to waste." And he's got some good crises here yeah. that he's going to have to work on. So, you know, is he going to go? No. Should he go? No. I don't think he should go. I think he should give him. He should get a chance to try to right the ship that he has appointed the admiral of so
1: is is there any evidence though that in the release of the video there was anything nefarious that he knew that it that what was in it would uh be damaging to him and the police that he was trying to cover it up
0: well i think it's obvious that he knew that the video was going to be damaging and controversial that's not a criminal act to try not to show that did he know
1: that it did not that the the visuals did not match with the written description of what which seemed to exonerate the police more than what we all saw. We don't
0: know exactly what he knew. He said he hadn't seen the video. Mm-hmm. It's pretty obvious from that the seems incurious for a hands-on. It type seems a personality. like a hands-on guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, he's he sort of he needed his own. Raman. He needed a chief of staff as tough as he was when he was chief of staff to 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 run this thing. Did he see that video? He says no. Did he know what was on it? Pretty clearly, he knew
1: basically what was on it. Right, because if he didn't know what was on it, there would be why, there would be this effort to not release it. Why would you pay $5 million to yeah. a family if you didn't know what was on that video?
0: Uh, $5 million, it's a lot even to Chicago. What is plan B? Plan B, I think, for these protesters has got to be, first of all, to get out and register voters, that they have you know, opportunity to mobilize their community. They have to get on the case, not of the mayor so much, but on, on individual aldermen. You know, We have 50 aldermen in this city. They are very close to their constituents, but many of them are just lapdogs for the mayor, have been, you know, going back through the daily administration. You need to have independent voices on the council and have to be supported with phone calls and letters and demonstrations and donations and fundraising drives and those kind of things. You have to, they have to encourage that kind of, of independence. They also have to decide what it is they want exactly. There's a lot of protesting about, you know, Justice, we want justice, we want... This. But what is it exactly that they want? What systems do they want in place? What laws do they want changed? You know, what, what tax laws do they want changed? Specific things, you have to make specific asks of this city and push those rather than this sort of gauzy calls for reform and changes. But what
1: you're describing is a reformation of what's known nationally as the Chicago way, Chicago politics.
0: Right, but you're not going to get that. If you just change the mayor, you're not going to get that. I mean, you have to change it from from the grassroots up, and that has to be something that that has has realistic goals and has specific goals. And right now, the specific goal of getting Rahm Emanuel to leave just isn't going to happen. That's the problem.
1: I guess the question I have as a non-Chicagoan, someone who is interested but not totally well-versed, does this show that Rahm Emanuel was less competent than we thought? For for all his flaws, I think he had the air of competency about him.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, he, he hired the the first school superintendent he hired, turned out to be kind of a dud. The second one turned out to be a crook, allegedly. She, well, actually, no, she pleaded guilty <laughs> in federal court. So I take back my allegedly. No, she, the second school superintendent he hired turned out to be a crook. He hired a, a police superintendent who turned out not, not to work out on his terms. There was another city official who was uh, now in prison for his uh, misdeeds. And so, the, yeah, this air uh, of competence that he has was oversold. Uh, he didn't come in with all the answers. And the other thing that he that was also oversold was his ability to make tough decisions. When he came in, we were facing, we still are facing, enormous problems with pensions and debt. Yeah. And that required some, some tough decisions made in terms of, of tax policy and things like that. And he put those off. He put those off until after his reelection, And that arguably is not the work of someone who is, you know, I'm, I know what to do. I'm going to make the hard decisions, and you know, I'll let the chips fall where they may. No, he did not do that. So, so you know, you know, he's not he's not quite as as tough and strong and, and sure of himself as he makes himself out to be.
1: They said this about New York in the '70s, but are they saying it about Chicago now? Can you make the argument that Chicago is something <laughs> of an ungovernable city? The problems are just too severe. I mean, I'm my 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 sister is a teacher in the public schools. There's this doomsday scenario where they lose 500 million in funding. Uh, do you know about this? Oh yeah, oh, do I know about it? Yes, <laughs> I do
0: know about it. Yes, I mean they are facing enormous problems because they have pension payments yeah. due and they're, they're I mean they're looking at basically bankruptcy for the public they're schools. They're looking here.
1: at bankruptcy for the public schools. Something approaching high 80% of the students are uh, economically disadvantaged. They're, you don't have the tax base in Chicago as you do in some other cities. I mean, it seems it seems I love Chicago, but I don't and, know if I'd want the right, job of running it.
0: Right, you know, and people are leaving and our, and our Violence rates are going up. Oh, yeah, you know, we haven't even talked about murder. And yeah. uh, <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's still lower than it was back during the crack e- epidemic. But but it is everywhere else too. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you compare it to New York, compared to Los Angeles, we're, we're we're not doing as well. Right. So is Chicago ungovernable? no. I don't think so. I think that it is because there are to quote John McCain, the fundamentals of Chicago are strong. Still, we have a we have a great location. We have a great you know regional base. We have a good transportation hub. Lots of good stuff going on here. It's just that we're in a dip right now. And uh, it's going to take some tough, you know, pulling on the oars
1: by the state and the city to bring it back. Yeah. Broad shoulders, indeed. And broad shoulders, yes. indeed. That's us. All right. Eric Zorn is a columnist for the Chicago Tribune. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks, Mike. All right. Here's a website I'm going to mention. It's called Metal and Honey. Originally I was attracted to it because I like this naming convention, something hard and something soft. Graham Parker had an album called Acid Bubblegum. There are some jeans that I actually don't own a pair of, but it's a good name, Rag and Bone. So I like metal and honey. It's about recipes, traveling, cooking libations. And I was able to figure out what Metal and Honey was about because they got a cool website. The website has pictures of people standing in front of really cool graffiti, eating eggs and omelets, browsing the racks of bookstores and record stores. You get the metal and you get the honey and you do it because the website was designed via Squarespace. Squarespace sites all look professionally designed. I really don't know the skill level of the designers. They seem to have a good eye, like when they photographed the omelette. It was really well-framed. So maybe they are pretty artistic. They have intuitive and easy-to-use tools. And you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. I'd want to lock that metal and honey name up. So if I were them, I would do that. Start a free trial today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. No similar savings apply to the Metal & Honey website. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now the spiel, what it takes. In 2005, Heidi Cruz was a 34-year-old financial executive who had just left a high-powered job in the Bush administration. For the first time since 2003, she was living in the same city as her husband, Ted Cruz. Austin, you know Ted Cruz. And because you know him is why we know the next fact. A fact that I'm not sure if we need to know. So there, in 2005, a Texas policeman was called to the side of a highway by reports of a woman in a pink shirt, head in hands, no vehicle nearby. The officer noted Mrs. Cruz was sitting 10 feet from traffic and said in his report that he believed she was a danger to herself. She wasn't drunk. She eventually accepted the officer's offer of transportation home. Heidi Cruz does not use this as a turning point in inspirational speeches on the campaign trail. She didn't use it as a learning lesson in talks with donors. Ted didn't use the incident to, quote, humanize him. There was but one reference in his autobiography that mentions moving to Texas as leading, quote, to her facing a period of depression. I know this happened because the New York Times put it on their front page over the weekend. The story was out there it was out there as more than mere rumors. BuzzFeed broke it about nine months ago. But there it was on the front page. And the feeling I got upon reading it was that it should have been private. It should have been left alone. There's another argument, that this guy wants to lead the free world. He has pretty hard-charging rhetoric to say nothing of policies. And that voters deserve an insight into how he thinks. And it's a public record. There's nothing wrong or shameful in what Heidi Cruz went through. There should be no stigma to depression. There should be no hesitancy in discussing it, yet I do think that broaching the subject should be left to the person herself especially when we're talking about the candidate's spouse, not the candidate. But we think it's so important to know how the candidate will think or how the candidate was forged, what his or her disposition is, how he or she will make decisions. Listen to Lillian Cunningham explaining her raison d'etre behind the new Washington Post podcast, Presidential.
0: I had the idea that especially in this election year, it would be really fascinating to study up more on presidential leadership in particular, like the skills and the circumstances that have made certain presidents effective or ineffective, and whether the type of leadership traits required to do the job well have changed significantly
1: over the years. That conventional wisdom was solidified in Richard Ben Kramer's What It Takes, a detailed, psychologically probing look into the contenders for the 1988 presidential nomination. The office of the presidency, uniquely among political offices, is subject to extrapolation. We must analyze and vet the candidates for how they will handle crises for which they've never put out a position paper. What skills will they bring to bear? What temperament will they exhibit? There's certainly some logic to this, right? But I wonder about the limits of that logic. Maybe if you were selecting among a few candidates to head your company and all the candidates had different, similar visions for growth, it'd help you to dive into their psychologies, to try to assess their personal traits and how they make decisions. But in this presidential election, so many of the candidates lack anything approaching relevant qualification. Also, the visions they express are so different that engaging in a deep dive... Maybe it satisfies your curiosity, but it's inessential to determining your vote. Aha! So Donald Trump had a privileged childhood, forged in the discipline of military school, set against the backdrop of growing up with a 'er ne'er-do-well older brother. So I guess that's what led him to make up stories about thousands of Muslims on rooftops after 9-11. I don't exactly need to know how so many of these candidates came to their worldview when their worldview is just so completely wrong. Our military is a disaster. Our health care is a horror show,
0: Obamacare. We're going to repeal it and replace it. We have no borders. Our vets are being treated horribly. Illegal immigration is beyond belief. Our
1: country is being run by incompetent people. It seems to me that in evaluating presidential candidates, you need to A, see what they've done, B, hear what they're going to do, C, evaluate if they're really going to do it because, one, they could be lying, or two, they could be unable to achieve their agenda, and D, try to figure out what they would do in situations that have yet to arise. How do you figure that out? I'd go back to A, B, and C, with also noting caveats one and two. Cruz, Trump, Christie, even now Rubio, talk incessantly about a strong presidency, about America's weakness. Ergo, they will rely on diplomacy less and the military more. Bernie Sanders is not eager to launch missiles. Hillary Clinton somewhere in between. It's military might versus diplomatic guile. That is the choice. They say it's the choice, it is the choice. They often try to beat each other up internally. The Republicans beat each other up saying, no, I believe in this choice more. I believe them all. I think they all will do as they say and use the military before diplomacy. So how they come to these beliefs? Is that as important as the fact that these are their beliefs? All right. If you're interested in how they came to these beliefs, here's Matt Katz, author of a new Chris Christie biography. His grandmother got divorced after she caught her husband cheating. And divorce, of course, was rare back then in the 1940s. It was, it was still a rare thing to do in the 1950s when his own mother then divorced her first husband, who was abusive. And then Christie's parents, although they never divor- divorced, they did fight all the time, which had an effect on young Chris. Interesting, I guess. Invasive, for sure. But I believe Chris Christie would pick a fight as president before I heard Matt Katz talking about him. And I believe it just the same afterwards. Let me talk about baseball for a second and make an analogy. In baseball for years, scouts talked about a player's makeup. It meant how a player thinks, how he approaches the sport. Then the statistical revolution came along, and it turns out that hitting home runs in high school and hitting home runs in college was a lot more predictive of hitting home runs in the pros than the mindset about hitting home runs or important instances in one's childhood that crafted an idea of home runs. It's not that mindset doesn't play a role, it's just that it's already priced into what is objectively true about the candidates. Chris Christie going on and on about how tough he is, look at every one of his town hall meetings when he yells at teachers, that tells you what you need to know. Even the flip-floppiest of candidates will accurately tell you what they're going to do 90 or 95% of the time. Every Republican running for president says, I will cut taxes massively, including on the rich, and raise the deficit accordingly. And then they all say, but we're going to have growth and that'll make up for the rise in deficit. Every Republican running says he believes in austerity, not stimulus. You don't have to parse or evaluate or analyze the motivation. Just take him for his word. Weigh it against the policies that worked during the last recession. Within parties where the differences are smaller, you'll still get all the information you need from the candidates telling you what they will do. During the 2008 election, Hillary Clinton said she wouldn't talk to the Iranians. Barack Obama said he would. Barack Obama did. We now have the Iran deal. Like it? It's because Barack Obama said he would do it. Don't like it? Hillary Clinton probably wouldn't have done it. We use phrases like new perspective or transformational figure, bold conservative, unreconstructive progressive, they get thrown around. They're nice to plug into a story. They make the paragraph read more like prose than a scouting report. But by and large, we don't need them to decide our vote. We don't need to know what one candidate's wife did on the side of a highway 10 years ago. It might make her seem sympathetic. It might make him seem hard-charging. Might make her seem resilient. Might make him seem in denial. Or who knows? We're talking about Ted Cruz, a guy who says he wants to dismantle the departments of education, commerce, energy, housing and urban development, and the IRS, and says he favors a return to the gold standard. I know he would be a danger to others. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is just steps away from the finish line of the start of opera season. Executive producer of Slate podcasts Steve Lichtai is approaching the summit of buying comfortable shoes that will one day allow him to climb a hill of not insignificant incline. Andy Bowers, Panoply's chief content officer, knows that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's the final straightaway of the marathon once we get through these first 26.1 miles. The gist, we know that the longest journey begins with, whoops, journey just ended. Um-peru-de-peru-do-peru, and thanks for listening.